Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. Welcome to my show. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my Right Fit Method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. Listen to learn about my Right Fit Method from my guest interviews. The King of Pearls. My guest today is entrepreneur Jeremy Shepard, founder and president of PearlParadise.com, who built a niche pearl website at the age of 25, which he turned into a $25 million online pearl empire by the age of 33. The PearlParadise.com company has been profiled by the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, USA Today, and many other publications. Jeremy, what's your ripe old age today? Take us back to your childhood and describe your early wanderings. Well, today I'm 35 years old. And um, as a child, I spent a lot of time growing up overseas. I went to high school in Japan, spent some time um, living in Mexico, and did a lot of travel throughout Asia and Europe. Why were you traveling so much as a child? What was your family involved in that prompted all this travel? Well, my father was in the military, and I was actually born in Germany. Uh, My parents were based in Germany for a few years, and, um, of course, being in the military necessitates quite a bit of travel. And apart from my family, I did quite a lot of travel myself as well. Um, I went to Japan without my family, actually, uh, to attend school. I just had a love of international travel and was really drawn to anything international. You love learning new languages as you were growing up. Little Absolutely. Did you- Little did you know that you were setting the stage to become the King of Pearls. When you went off to Japan alone to attend high school to become more fluent in Japanese, Mm -hmm. what exactly happened in Japan as you were studying Japanese? And tell us what other languages you are also fluent in today. Well, when living in Japan, um, I fell deeply in love with the Asian culture, and I actually thought I would end up living there eventually, although that didn't work out. Um, But I, well, I came back to the U.S. to go to college, so um, thinking I would return to Japan eventually, but that really just didn't happen. So, um, you know, what did I learn in Japan? Um, Basically fluent Japanese, um, and a little bit about dealing with Um, Japanese people in business and on a social level. 
Other languages I speak, I speak Spanish fluently. I speak French quite well, um, not fluently. I speak Mandarin Chinese, and I speak the Micronesian dialect of Chukis. I'm curious, if I were Japanese, and you mm-hmm. were talking with me on the phone, mm-hmm. and I did not know that you were an American, mm-hmm. would I be able to tell that you were not Japanese. In other words, I'm trying to get a a sense as to the standard at which you've mastered Japanese because I think it's important in what you will be talking about later. So I wanted to understand that now, and I think it would be of interest to our listeners as well. I think that it would not be immediately apparent, but after a while it would be. Um, I'm not a native speaker, of course, so there are small um, things that can be picked up from non-native speakers. So um, eventually, yes, the person I'm speaking to would know that I'm not a native Japanese speaker, but uh, it would not be immediately apparent, no. Well, that's very impressive. Well, thank you. What entrepreneurial adventures did you pursue as you were growing up? Oh, just about anything I could. Um, I think my first business was selling cookies um, that I made and advertised and sold in my city when I was, oh, seven or eight years old. Um, other odd and, odds and end type um, little ventures that I did through my early teenage years. And when I came back to the U.S. to go to college, I started a transportation business called Express Transpo in Portland, Oregon, and did that for a while. How did you get these ideas? Because I think that's important. A lot of times people are amazed how people think of the idea. I mean, obviously, to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to have both. The ability to create the idea and also to have the vision to make it successful. But how did those ideas pop into your head as you were growing up? Do you remember? Um. You know, not completely when I was seven or eight years old, but I remember when I was older, you know, I saw a need for something. And I think people a lot of the time see needs or see business potentials or business opportunities. I think what was different about me at the time is when I saw these opportunities, I actually followed through with them and um, did what I could to make them work. Um, I think it's just a matter of seeing needs and seeing opportunities to fulfill needs or seeing opportunities that may fulfill needs that you don't need, that you don't even know exist at the time. Did that excite you? Business always excites me. Always has, always will. You decided to become a flight attendant for Northwest Airlines at age 20. Mhm. What prompted you to do this? Well, as I said, I traveled a lot growing up, and travel was always an important part of my life and something I loved, and I I knew I wanted to travel a lot more as an adult. Um, You really have a couple of options to do a lot of travel um, at a young age like 20. Number one, you can join the military, and number two, you can get a job with an airline or maybe a cruise line. Because I was multilingual, I was a natural shoe-in for the airline industry, and it was easy for me to get a job with an international carrier. And so when I felt I was ready for it, um, I applied. And within just a few days, I was in for an interview, and shortly thereafter, I was flying. Do you remember if they asked you questions that you couldn't answer? Um, 
I don't remember any questions that I couldn't answer. Um, there well, was questions. a lot of testing in, in language, and ah. some of the uh, some of the words I was unfamiliar with, um, you know, airline specific words, but um, primarily in Spanish. But um, I still passed the uh, the language examinations well, well enough to be language certified with the airline. So um, I don't think there was there were any questions that were difficult. Would the would this was an oral exam or a written exam or both? All oral. All oral. Right. And were uh native speakers or not necessarily? Um the person who interviewed me, um, strangely enough, um interviewed me both in Spanish and in Japanese. He spoke both languages as well. He was a native Spanish speaker but he wasn't a native Japanese speaker. Interesting. Going further. So the I Japanese I sailed through because I actually spoke Japanese quite a bit better than he did. So. Ah, now we're getting to it. I love it. Ah, did he recognize that your Japanese was superior to his? Immediately. We immediately started conversing in Japanese, and, um, yeah, it was it was noticeable. His was more studied in college, spent a year in Japan, sort of Japanese, where it's quite textbook and um, adequate, definitely adequate, but not anywhere near fluent. Did that give you a shoe-in? Well, just speaking the languages absolutely gave me a shoe-in. Shoe-in. Uh, Spanish would not necessarily be an absolute shoe-in, but speaking, speaking any Asian language is a shoe-in with an international airline. On one of your Northwest flights, you had a layover in China. Mm-hmm. And you wandered into an exotic pearl market. <laughs> Walk us through the pearl market so we can visualize what you saw, how you felt, and the role that instinct played in your pearl purchase. Well, on layovers in China, we typically spent three to five days on the ground. And there were a lot of things crew members all had seen things like the Great Wall, Tiananmen Square, um, and, of course, the Hongtao Pearl Market. And I had known about the Hongtao Pearl Market, but wasn't really that interested in it, simply because I didn't really have much of an interest in shopping at the time. I was a flight attendant. And I decided one day on a layover to uh, go with some of my friends to the Pearl Market. The Pearl Market's a big building. It's about four or five stories tall. And the first two floors or actually the first three floors are things such as electronics, T-shirts, shoes, basically everything a tourist could want to shop for when they're, when they're shopping in China. Everything is very inexpensive. The fourth floor is where the uh, pearl market starts. And um, when I got up to the pearl market, I was absolutely amazed by the mounds and mounds of literally tens of thousands of strands and millions of pearls piled floor to ceiling everywhere you could see. And um, I basically just walked around and soaked it all in. And I figured since I'm there, I may as well pick up a strand of pearls for my girlfriend and ended up talking to um, to a merchant there on the floor who I seemed to hit it off with quite well. And she gave me a, a uh, table full of strands to choose from, and I chose one strand for my girlfriend and brought it back to the U.S., and that's when it all started. 
when you chose the strand, did she give you any guidance? And this was all done in Japanese, right? You were speaking to her in Japanese and she to you in Japanese. No. No, no. Oh, in China, I mean. You were speaking. Yeah, this, this was in China. And China. at the time, I didn't speak Chinese. Okay. So it, was, it was all in English. Um, well, when she showed me the strands, um, yes, yeah, she did give me some guidance. You know, I didn't really know anything about pearls at the time. She offered a number of strands for me to choose from, and I just chose the one that I thought was the nicest. Um, had the best shape, best color, you know, but best But you see surface. what you're saying. You did have a little blueprint. The best shape, the best color. In other words, so you did have an idea in your mind as to what you liked, apparently. I think you... the idea was created as I was looking at them because, you know, it was sort of ah. an, aesthetic, an aesthetic grasp of what I wanted. Um, you know, some just didn't look what I would call pretty at the time. <laughs> I describe them a lot better now. But um, I chose the one that I felt just fit, fit me the best. Okay. When you return, return to the U.S. with the pearl necklace that you bought in China, mm-hmm. what did you do next with it? I gave it to my girlfriend. And, and what did she do next with it? <laughs> <laughs> this is a whole chain reaction here. Yeah, it really is. Uh, well, she uh, got it appraised for her homeowner's insurance. Um, of course, I didn't tell her I'd spent about $20 for the strand of pearls. You know, it was a gift. And she came back to me and told me that um, it appraised for about $600. Um, granted, it was appraised by a local jeweler, and those appraisals aren't always as accurate as you know professional appraisers are. But still, light bulbs started to go off in my head. My gosh, a $20 strand of pearls just appraised for $600. There might be a business opportunity here that um, you know I could explore. When she told you that the $20 strand was worth 600 did you indicate to her that your price, the price that you paid, was less than that or did you not say anything um oh i'm sure i did um, you you did okay she, you couldn't, she knew you I couldn't help it. yourself you could yeah, sure uh she knew i had purchased the strand of pearls in china and um yeah it was it was commonly known throughout our industry and she's actually a flight attendant for northwest airlines as well um she knew as well as i knew that the pearls were much less expensive in um, china than we would expect them to be in the u.s just not to what degree Okay, so everybody was happy, and then the light bulb went off in your head, and you said, aha, Eureka, a business idea. Tell us what you did next. Well, I thought, okay, I've got got, uh, a way to get pearls, and the pearls seem to be much more valuable here than they are in China. I can bring them back. I travel to China China frequently, so let's see where I can sell them. I started out visiting jewelry stores um, around the Portland area, which is where I lived at the time, um, visiting boutiques, talking to jewelers, um, you know, basically talking to anyone I could to see if I could find a way to get an in to, uh, to supply pearls. And what I found was that, number one, I wasn't in the industry. I didn't really know anything about the product. And no one was really interested in talking to me about it, especially jewelers. And as I found later, 
in part that was because they really don't own the product that's in the store, their own stores for the most part. They're there on consignment from wholesalers around the U.S., and they have long-standing relationships with wholesalers that just send the product to their stores, and once they sell the product, they pay the wholesaler. So I really got nowhere fast and realized that I had to do something else if I was going to make this business a reality. What I think is very interesting, Jeremy, is that you're very good at changing your behavior because you didn't keep knocking your head against a wall. Mm -hmm. You knew that approaching the stores wouldn't work you figured out why it wouldn't work, and you were ready to do something else. It sounds mm-hmm. like at that point you already were determined. So tell us what happened when you looked on the Internet and whom you selected to sell to. Well, um, I was talking with one of my friends who actually called me one day and said, hey, I think I might have an idea where you – could possibly sell sell these pearls that you're talking about from China. And he had been selling some odds and ends online on this kind of new website at the time called eBay. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to check it out. So I checked it out, and I thought, well, this doesn't look too bad, but I really couldn't figure it out as quickly as I wanted to. Um, I didn't have a digital camera. I didn't, um, you know, I just wasn't really that savvy online at the time. So I decided to search out other opportunities online for selling, and I found that Amazon, Amazon Amazon.com, had a similar auction format to eBay at the time. And I was quite familiar with Amazon because I purchased a lot of books from Amazon. Um, I was recently a student, and I had used Amazon. And so I decided to um, attempt to sell pearls on Amazon. So within a very short amount of time, I was able to figure it out and place what was called a Dutch auction for maybe 25 strands of pearls um, at, I believe, $60 a strand is what I was offering them for, using the same information that came off the appraisal that my girlfriend had gotten from her jeweler. And then what happened next? Well, when I put the auction up on Amazon, I figured it was do or die. It's it's going to happen. Um, I cashed my paycheck. Um, took all the money I could out of my credit cards, and hopped on a flight to Beijing, China. I went right back to the pearl market, back to the same lady that I had purchased the first strand of pearls from, told her what I was doing, and said I wanted as many of those strands as I could. I wanted to buy as many of those strands as I could, identical to the strand that I had purchased um, previously from her. And um, I purchased... Wow probably around 200 strands, maybe a few more, and took them all back to the U.S. And by the time I got back to the U.S., my Dutch auction had closed, and every one of the pieces that I had available in the Dutch auction had sold. Voila, an entrepreneur born. That's how it all started. Outstanding, Jeremy. Going a bit further, oh, I can't resist asking before I go a bit further. Sure. Were you able to convince her in China to sell the strands for less than $20, or did you still have to pay $20 a strand? You know, I ended up doing business with this seller of pearls for quite some time. I don't really remember the first time that I did a larger purchase from her, but I know that over the next couple of years we did a lot of negotiating. 
and I don't really remember clearly on the first time. Um, you know, I really had to rely on her more than anything else because I, at that time, didn't really know the product. So it wasn't so much about negotiating. Negotiating is more something that would come later on once, you know, there's an understanding of the product and knowing the differences in quality, the differences in size, etc. So um, the negotiation, negotiation portion of it really came a bit later. Tell us about the Galley Pearl Parties. The galley you, pearl parties, yes. Yes, in which you sold pearls to crew members. Well, when I was starting this business out, um, of course, I was a flight attendant, and that meant I traveled constantly. And selling online means you need to be able to sell every day. You need to be able to answer emails every day. You need to be able to ship product every day. So what happened was I was I carried a duffel bag with me full of pearls everywhere I went. Now, along with a laptop computer, a credit card machine, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it didn't take long before nearly every trip I went to, not only was I selling online, but I was selling to other pilots and flight attendants um, you know, on the galley, in the galleys of airplanes. If I had five legs in a day, um, people wouldn't know I was coming. I was turning into the pearl guy at Northwest Airlines. People from the ramp would come up. People from baggage would come up. Ticket agents would come up to the gate, and um, and everybody was buying pearls. So I was selling a lot of pearls while I was working um, offline as well as online. And from my layover hotels, I would answer emails. I would uh, answer telephone calls, and I would actually ship product from any post office I could find um, within the layover city I was staying at. So that in this process of doing all this selling, you were basically a walking store and you were honing your entrepreneurial skills to become the king of pearls. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Consumed with passion, you immersed yourself in pearls, became Mm -hmm. a negotiator, an expert appraiser. Yes. How did all this develop? What did you do? Well, in order to to be successful with any enterprise or basically any product, you really have to know the product. And when I started, I didn't know the product. Um, and I really didn't have anyone to teach me either. I was I was in a brand new niche business. You know, selling pearls on an airplane was a brand new type of enterprise. Selling pearls online was a brand new type of enterprise. So I didn't have any mentors um, or any best practices to follow. So I began learning everything I could about pearls. Um, and that, of course, meant reading a lot of books, taking uh, the Gemological Institute of America's Pearl course, and learning Chinese. Um, and I did that by attending the Berlitz Language Academy, where I did an immersion course in Mandarin Chinese, so I would have the ability to negotiate with a lot more pearl dealers in China, those who might not speak English or might not speak English very well, and um, basically progressed like that. But you also, I think, went ahead and uh, studied for a bachelor's degree, and then um, you received certification um, so tell us a little bit about how you made the decisions to do that and well, the significance I, in terms of developing your business. 
Well, I was actually a, a student um, while I was a flight attendant, prior to even selling pearls. I graduated um, probably a year or two into uh, my business of selling pearls. Um, my my school, of course, was not, um, you know, I didn't actually have to attend school. I did everything by email and did everything online. So basically I was a student of Pearl, I was a student of business, and I was actually an undergrad at the time. My layovers were really busy. When did you sleep, Jeremy? <laughs> a few hours here and there. That's what I would expect. When did you set up your first website? My first website attempt was set up in 1999 um, with the help of my brother. And um, it was a very basic one-page site, just sort of testing the waters to see if, um, you know, if, if it, would, uh, if it would, you know, would work. And we had some success with it, and he decided he was going to build his own website, Pearl website, which he still owns today and does quite well. And shortly thereafter, in 2000, I decided it was time to um, build a website. So it was probably near the beginning of 2000 that I finally sat down and built a website for myself. Let's look at how you actually buy the pearls. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, there are many ways you can do that. Perhaps you could discuss... What are the different ways of doing that? Why you selected buying from the pearl farmers? And please do tell us what a pearl farm is. Well, it was sort of a um, it was sort of a process, um, almost an evolution in the business. When I started, I did not buy from pearl farmers. I pr purchased from pearl traders. Um, and, well, basically a pearl farm is where pearls are grown. Uh, a lot of people think that cultured pearls might not be genuine pearls, but what they don't understand is the natural pearls found by accident on the bottom of the ocean floor almost don't exist today. All the pearls they see in every jewelry store in the United States and around the world, they are all cultured pearls and they're grown at pearl farms. Basically what happens is a pearl farmer collects either mussels if it's freshwater or pearl oysters, mollusks, if, um, if the pearls are saltwater, and implants either a mother of bead nucleus for saltwater or a piece of mantle tissue for freshwater into the shell, then returns the shell back to the water, and a pearl develops. It can take anywhere from six months to two years for a saltwater variety, from two to six years for, for a freshwater variety. And that's more or less the way a pearl farm works. Now, I decided I wanted to go directly to Pearl Farmers because there really was no reason for me, especially as my business started to grow, to deal simply with traders. Um, the volume was growing to a large enough um, range that I could purchase from Pearl Farmers directly or I could purchase from Pearl Farmers that own their own factories and were processing the products directly for our company. With respect to the development of the relationship with the pearl farmers, what exactly did you do so that you would be able to get the best prices for the right fit pearls? Or I should say, the right fit prices for the, the right, right fit, fit pearls. That's right. 
because we're interested in the right fits. Well, it's uh, a lot of it's about relationships, and um, I developed long-standing relationships, which I still have today, um, with different farmers from all different types of pearls. And a lot of that relationship is based on respect. It's based on respect of understanding um, the culture, doing business with whatever country it may be in. It's, um, you know, there's a lot of respect that comes from learning the local language. And um, just fair dealings, always being fair, always being trustworthy. It, it, it's, it's more a matter of time than anything else, I think, to, to build these relationships. And um, choosing the right people to deal with, whether it be the right farmer, whether it be the right processor or trader, it, it really comes down to finding someone that's the correct fit for me, correct fit for my business, and the correct fit for the product. And that comes down to you know, honesty, it comes down to quality of product, it comes down to trust, and um, it, a lot of it comes down to respect as well. If I would ask the question of the pearl farmers, why is Jeremy the right fit customer, what do you think they would say about you? Well, the number one answer would be because he buys a lot of pearls. <laughs> that's, <laughs> always, that's always the primary, primary factor. Um, I would say, number two, in all the years I've dealt with any of the people I've dealt with in Asia, Indonesia, Australia, French Polynesia, um, the Philippines, I have always paid either cash up front or if any of the inventory is on memo, all of it on time. And um, there's a great deal of trust in that considering a lot of the shipments that um, they may send out to me or I may go and pick up and then wire the money later can be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So they've never had to chase you for the money, and you're saying that that's obviously key obviously. in how they view you as the right fit customer. Absolutely. But also, too, the fact that you have high standards mm -hmm. in the selection of pearls, which we'll talk about shortly, as well as the fact that you speak their language, wouldn't that also um, contribute to why you are the right fit customer? Um, it's, that's, that's kind of a difficult, um, it's kind of difficult to answer because, yes, our standards are extremely high in what we select. Now, that can actually make us a bit of a more difficult customer because a lot of farmers and a lot of producers and traders prefer to sell a range of product and a when they're doing business with us, a range of product is not accepted. It's strictly one area of quality that we accept. So that, I'm sure, you know, it would, um, of course, command respect for our business. They understand what we want, understand what we need. But um, we are a difficult customer. We're a very difficult customer because our standards are so high. But remember, you're paying right away. Absolutely. So on one hand, you're a difficult customer, so to speak, because you have the high standards. Uh, tell us what kind of standards you have for the pearls themselves so that we understand. And I think the listeners would be interested because it would help them in their selection of pearls to have 
a sort of a quick little class here in a few sentences about why your pearls are, in fact, uh, selected to meet the high standards, and what are those standards? Well, the standards are going to vary by type of pearl. Our primary pearls are freshwater pearls from China, Akoya pearls from Japan and China, uh, um, South Sea pearls from Australia, the Philippines, and Indonesia, and um, Black South Sea or Tahitian pearls from French Polynesia. Now, our standards, and I'll just take one genre of pearl, say Tahitian pearls, for example. Um, when purchasing Tahitian pearls wholesale, there are four acceptable levels of pearls, A, B, C, and D. C and D pearls are what are referred to as commercial grade or necklace material. Those are pearls that are used to make strands, and those are the most commonly wholesaled strands of pearls. They have spots on them. They may have rings on them. They may have indentations on them. However, we never buy any pearls that fall below B grade. In other words, all of our pearls are A or AB grade. And so all of the strands we make are perfectly spotless perfectly round, unless, of course, we're selecting something like a Baroque line where we're intentionally finding different shapes, but still clean pearls. Um, By having that standard, it has completely set us apart from retailers, from other wholesalers, simply because our pearls will always be at the highest standards, and because we're selling direct and we're purchasing direct, we always have a better price. We're selling a higher quality pearl for a lower price. Would you say that this is an uncommon approach, the one that you take? What I would say as the call the less traveled road, um, being so particular about the quality of pearls and, and concurrently keeping the prices low. I would say it's a very unique approach. Um, the only other buyers that we compete with, whether it be in French Polynesia or anywhere else around the world, are wholesale buyers. In other words, they're purchasing for a wide range of clientele. Um, And so they don't have the same demands for quality that we might have because they're selling wholesale. They have a market for the higher end. They have a market for the medium end. They have a market for the low end, and they really need to carry all of that product. Our product or our customer base only demands one one quality level of product, so we only buy one quality level of product. But that's why you set a standard against which no one can compete because of that. Absolutely. 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 Our A-grade product sells for the same price, if not less, than a C or a D-grade product does on the uh, commercial market. It's amazing. What would you say is the significance of the high standards on the success of your business? I would say it is the significant. It is the reason for our the success of our business. Um, being an online company, we we're in sort of a difficult position in that people don't see the product before they buy from us. So if we are not sending out the best possible product eventually business is going to dry up. And not only that, eventually it's going to become well-known online because, of course, online everyone talks, blogs, forums, chat rooms, etc. Um, it'd be well-known that our product is substandard. So I think maintaining the highest standards in product is absolutely the most important element in our success.
clearly the selection of the right fit employees is key to this whole endeavor. Can you walk us through how you uh, select the right fit employees? Well, whenever we hire, um, we put out an ad, typically on Craigslist. We love Craigslist. And we, of course, get inundated with resumes, especially these days. Um, what we're looking for is personality, is passion, it's character, and a lot of this tends to come through in the cover letter, which is the most important part of any resume we receive. When we receive resumes, we go through every one of them and find the ones that we feel on paper are the best fit, or that we feel a good fit for our company. And um, then we select just a few and we invite them in for interviews. Once they come in for interviews, a lot can be told immediately by the uh, by the candidate. Um, the passion for our company can be can be immediately told simply by the research they've done before they've come into to the interview. Whether or not they've gone over their website with a fine tooth comb, or whether or not they walk in the door and they're not even certain that this is a pearl company. Um, from the interview process, we tentatively choose potential employees and we send them home with a book about pearls. And a week to 10 days later, we have them back in the office where they sit down with an, uh, for an oral examination with me on how much they've learned, how much they've retained, how quickly they were able to learn about pearls. And if they pass the test, they are hired. Is this a preset interview so that you ask the same questions of each person, basically? Never. No. No. You ask each person different questions. Pretty much, yeah. Are you talking about the oral test? Um, yeah, the oral the test. Yeah, because I'm curious as to how you figure out who matches your blueprint of the right person. Well, the questions aren't necessarily very pointed questions. Um, they may be something like, um, tell me about Akoya pearls, or tell me the difference between Akoya pearls and freshwater pearls, or what are your favorite kinds of pearls? Um, because those sorts of questions give the candidate a lot more opportunity to, to, to explain to you what they've learned or, or what they love about pearls or what they've, um, you know, maybe things that they've discovered that they didn't know before. So they're not the type of questions that you would expect like a multiple choice or true No, or it's a little essay, a little verbal essay. Basically. Yeah, yeah. No, well, that makes sense because if they're not able to, I guess, verbalize the information, how are they then going to go the next step and actually examine the pearls? Am I following this? Um, at that point, I don't think it's necessarily um, what we're what we're looking for. I think the answers really tell about h how much interest they have in pearls because you have to have an interest in the in the product to uh, to be successful here um, they also tell us how much they've been able to retain how quickly they've been able to learn which of course also shows um, you know an interest in the product from there I think everything well, that's else your can blueprint be that's what I'm trying to get at Jeremy that's your okay. blueprint that's what you're evaluating them on right that's good yeah because that's what when people go out on interviews Frequently, they don't understand uh, what the employer is going to evaluate them on. So that's why I'm probing away so our listeners will understand 
what an employer is looking for on an interview. And in your situation, this is really aesthetic learning about pearls. Right. It's not the same thing as learning about the computer. Absolutely. So this is good. What about judgment? Are you able to assess if a person is going to have reasonable judgment? Because that's a difficult thing to, to assess. I understand that you're assessing interest level, passion. Mm-hmm. I can see that. But what about the ability to judge, to evaluate the pearls, do you think? Okay. Are you um, able to tell that? Not not in that point. Now, okay. uh, at judgment, um, a lot of potential employees get vetted out prior to the interview process based on judgment calls. And that's a whole other topic, but that may have to do with MySpace pages, uh, Facebook, etc. Um, we found a lot of interesting things about people online prior to bringing them in for interviews, and uh, many people have been vetted out of the process prior to an interview. In terms of evaluating pearls and um, judging pearls, it's such a learned process. Some people may be more natural at it than others. Some people may have a better eye for it than others, but... It's not something that I feel can't be learned. Oh, good. So that's something okay. That comes, that's something that comes later on. Fine. All right. So you're really trying to determine whether the person has what it takes to learn what needs to be learned. Is that Absolutely. correct? Absolutely. Yes. Okay, good. Lynn, let's say you hire someone and that person begins next Monday. Mm-hmm. Can you explain the training process? Well, it's going to vary from position to position. So um, let's just say the most common one, which would be uh, customer service and sales. It would, um, uh, well, the first day and actually the first couple of weeks, it would be shadowing one of our one of our top performers here in the office, and um, you know, very hands on. Maybe not on the first day, but by the second or third day very hands-on, listening in on telephone conversations with customers, um, handling the pearls, making the matches, um, learning how to select pearls for orders or learning how to select colors to match colors. It's it's a very hands-on process before we actually – it's hands-on, but almost to the point we're shadowing or babysat until we finally let someone loose and say, okay, you're good on your own which can take a couple of weeks. Well, that's not very much time, I don't think, really. I mean, considering it's, it's, I'm sure some people spend quite a long time learning this, I would think. Well, they'll spend years learning all the intricacies. Right. Um, but um, when you're immersed in it, you're spending hours and hours every day with your hands in pearls. It, it comes pretty quickly. That's good. What about the retention rate? I mean, how good are you at selecting the right fit using the formula that you are using, using the blueprint that you use to select the right fits? Most employees that we have now um, have been with us from basically the beginning since we got in office. Um, we've had a few employees that have left to pursue other things. One left to, pr- to pursue a uh, a career in writing, another one um, left to go back to school, and we have lost another one whose husband was relocated to Seattle. But other than that, all the employees we have here I would consider very long-term. So that's excellent. So you've done a good job at selecting. Yeah, our, retri- our attrition rate is very low. 
talk about the right fit consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you do to convince consumers to trust you, and what assurances do you give them? Wow. Um, yeah, that's that's a, a loaded question with a lot of answers. <laughs> but, that's um, good. That's good. We have time. Can you, okay. Jeremy? Um, it's a fascinating conversation. Um, what did we do to get customers to trust us? Um, there are there are really so many things. I would say the basic, most important ones are having confidence in ourselves and our education about the product. Um, today's consumer, especially an online consumer, is a very well-educated consumer. There's so much information online about pearls. Now, in order to be credible with the customer that calls, we have to know the answer to basically any pearl question that can be given to us. And um, we pride ourselves on that in that every question that's ever been given to us, we feel we can answer in-house without researching it, without calling anyone. And that gives us a lot of credibility right right from the get-go. Um, as far as trust goes, of course, being members of things such as the Better Business Bureau, which we have been a member of for years and have never received a complaint, other things such as... Um, you know, hacker safe and you know other things that give uh, give credibility to our website. Um, we give a 90-day, no questions asked, money-back guarantee, and we ship for free. So basically, that means it's a no-lose situation for a potential customer. Um, they can order a product from us, receive it in a couple of days. Shipping is for free. If they don't like it, they send it back, and they don't pay anything. So there are a number of different ways to. Um, to instill credibility and instill trust to potential customers, which is very important because our customers are buying product from us, something as personal as jewelry, and they're buying it sight unseen. They're not necessarily just buying the product. They're buying something from us. And this is a lot based on, of course, our brand, but then more importantly, on trust. It's interesting. You really mentioned trust a number of times in the conversation in terms of the pearl farmers, the consumer. I think it's uh, something that we don't think enough about, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why we have some of the economic issues that we do. What are your thoughts in that arena, Jeremy? Um, Because of trust? Yeah, I think that we have forgotten that people need to have relationships, and relationships are built on trust. And part of trust has to do with predictability, mm-hmm. that you think to yourself, oh, this person will be doing this, this, and this, and this, because you're accustomed to that person doing that. Right, right. Well, if um, the basis of any, um, any type of business, I feel, is, is trust. And... Um, for me and for our for our business, it's something that's an absolute that that can't be broken. And um, I think every successful business needs to. Maybe they don't all rely on trust, but every successful business should have a basis in in trust. Whether it be trust of suppliers, whether it be a consumer trust in them. Um, without trust, a lot of business is going to be lost. How this plays out on the economic scene. Right. Um, wow. Um, <laughs> well, think, 
think about that for a minute because I think what is important with respect to what you're saying is that you made a conscious effort and attempt from the beginning of your business to establish the trust. I guess that's what I'm saying, that a lot of people don't consider that part of their responsibility to think that through and to set the stage to establish the trust. And I think you've done that deliberately. And that, I think, is worthy of our listeners thinking about. Mm -hmm. Going further, unless you have something that you wanted to say about the economy... Um, well, it's a mess. <laughs> we would all uh, agree. Yeah, it's 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 definitely been interesting, but and it's caused us to adjust a lot. Um, we've had to change our marketing strategies, our marketing tactics, early on when the economy started to slip. But we've can you give us some examples of that? Because again, sure. you're mentioning the change, and it's fabulous how you change your behavior quickly. For many, that's not possible. They're not comfortable doing that. Is that something you did at an early age? If something wasn't working, you quickly changed your behavior? Well, or is always, it something and that's you how learned? I started this business. Yeah. Um, I think, well, at an early age, I may have changed my behavior in certain circumstances, but in business, I always have. It's always about adopting to, to the changes. You know, you can't control the economy. Um, you can't control the fluctuation of the U.S. dollar versus the euro or the Chinese renminbi. It's always about adapting to whatever changes are handed to you. The economic slowdown started to affect us um, summer of actually 2007, and um, we started changing our product mix up a little bit. Um, and we we held strong through Christmas of 2007 and through the first half of 2008. In 2008, we noticed a strong downturn, not necessarily in sales volume, but in average ticket values. So we decided to redesign the homepage of our website and put a, a, a stronger focus on on higher value pieces and lower tick on higher, I'm sorry, perceived value pieces with lower ticket values. And at the same time, we started a campaign, a national radio campaign, and some print advertising as well as a targeted online pay-per-click campaign based on a model that we called Luxury for Less. And we, our message was that luxury can still is, – is still, um, you, you can still have luxury without paying the high ticket value is basically what we were saying. And it paid off quite well, our – Christmas season was down slightly in overall value from the year before, but volume was up tremendously. Um, we've carried the same campaign through 2009 through till March now, and our volume is so much higher than it was in 2008 and in 2007 that even with the lower ticket value averages, our actual revenue is higher this year than it has ever been. Whose idea was it to create the Sasha and Malia Obama necklaces. I think that was either Kirsten's here in the office or our designer, Hisano. Um, I'm not certain. Um, it, everything here is a collective effort, so when um, when new designs come across my desk or new ideas come, um, we basically sit down all together and decide whether or not it's something we want to we move forward with. <laughs> 
Because I think it was a clever idea. It was primarily um, for um, for PR, and it actually worked quite well. We've got a lot of print and online press for that piece. There wasn't much profit in that piece, but um, it did uh, drive a lot of traffic to our site. Well, that's what you wanted. I don't think I don't think you necessarily did it with the idea you were going to make a big profit, but it certainly got people's attention. It was it a was branding. a positive distractor. Yes, absolutely. You like that? A positive distractor. Positive distractor, yes. Yes. Let's go further. In my book, Win Without Competing, I devote an entire chapter about the importance of not making assumptions. Mm-hmm. And there is one assumption that didn't that you did not make which changed your life. Can you tell us about that? Well, the biggest assumption, and are you speaking with um, within regards to this business? Absolutely. Okay. Well, the biggest assumption I made, or the biggest did, assumption I did, did not, not make, make, right, was that a jewelry purchase is absolutely a personal purchase, and consumers need to be able to feel it. They need to be able to have it in their hand. They need to be able to try it on before they'll ever purchase the product. Um. I was told repeatedly when I started this company, and actually a couple of years into this company, even after I'd become successful, that it just wasn't a feasible business simply because a jewelry purchase is a personal purchase and people are not going to buy jewelry sight unseen. And by not following that assumption, we've been able to prove them wrong and prove them wrong on a very large scale. Did you believe that there was any um, basis to people's belief that it had to be personal and they had to walk into a store to feel the pearls, to look at them. And if you had a sense that there was some validity to this, how did you overcome the customer's objection that they couldn't feel it while they're looking at it on the website? Well, that's a combination of things. Um, Of course, um, number one is the the, uh, the design and the credibility of the website. Um, number two would be true-to-life photography. We want to present the pearls exactly as they're going to look without um, flashy Photoshop or um, you know m- trying to make the product look better than it actually does. In fact, we always make sure the product actually looks better in person than it does on the website, and that has been very successful in for us in driving our return ratio down below 2%. So that combined with guarantees that are unheard of in the industry, and the primary guarantee is 90 days. Wear it, take it. If you don't like it, send it back, and we eat the cost. I think it's interesting that you're saying that you don't oversell it because that's really what you just said by right. not enhancing the look of it and not right. so that when you get it, so when you open up the box you're excited because it's mm-hmm. looking better than what you imagined it's terrific Absolutely um this is especially important in what we call single item pieces like uh like a baroque south sea or something to that effect if there's a uh, minute blemish on one of the pearls, well, then you photograph it so that's 
completely visible. You don't turn the pearl so you can't see this blemish, and you don't airbrush the blemish out of the way. You make sure that every little last detail is visible on, on the product, so there's never a disappointment, and the customer never receives anything that's not exactly what they expect. You can see companies that don't do that. Um, I'm not going to point out any pearl companies, but say other companies, for example, where it looks so much better on the box than it does when you open the box up. Well, that's sort of the American way, don't you think? It is the American way in traditional marketing and traditional selling, but it's not the right way on um, selling online. Well, I think that's the point. Um, that's why you win without competing, because you're setting a standard against which no one can compete, doing it Jeremy's way. Doing it Jeremy's way. I like yeah. that. Yeah, doing it Jeremy's way. How did competing with yourself contribute to your becoming a name brand? You've said it, but I'd like you kind of to summarize it. I think competing with myself is actually a uh, a good statement in of itself in that um, we've never been in a position and never really tried to compete with anyone else. Um, we're just competing with ourselves, constantly trying to do better and constantly finding ways to to grow, to grow not only the size of our business, but to grow our um, customer experience. Our, our, yeah, exactly, our customer experience, our, um, our product line, um, our customer service, constantly setting challenges and, you know, trying to make the next step of our business better than the last step. It's a never-ending process. Well, you but keep online, raising the bar, right? You keep raising the bar. Absolutely, always raising the bar. In in the online world, complacency is the death of a business. Um, if you don't change and you don't keep moving up, things will eventually start to slide down. Well, I must say that the story that you told today is really an outstanding illustration of how you used my right fit method step-by-step to win without competing. I hope you will share your story in my next business career book. I would love to. I'm especially impressed with your ability to change your behavior quickly, your high standards, and your ability to pick, probe, and pitch to broadcast why you are the right fit. What advice do you have for our listeners who want to become entrepreneurs and for those who are struggling in their businesses? Well, to answer the first part of the question, I would say the biggest piece of advice I would have to potential entrepreneurs is to follow through with the idea. I've heard countless what you may refer to as elevator pitches from friends, acquaintances, people I don't even know that well about great ideas that they may have and they may think they're great ideas, they may not be great ideas, they may be great ideas. But when they're told, of course, the person telling them thinks they're great ideas and thinks this is a way to make a great business, make a ton of money. But people have those ideas all the time. And I'm sure the listeners themselves can think back to a time when they've had an idea that thought that they've thought, this is a great idea. I could totally turn this into a business. But so few people actually follow through with them. So few people actually do the research or take the next step into making that great idea a reality or even 
seeing if that great idea is a feasible idea. So I think that's probably one of the biggest stumbling blocks for entrepreneurs these days is just not taking the time to follow through. For people that are struggling, um, the reasons for struggling can be infinitesimal. We don't know what the reason may be. It may be a money reason. It may be um, a, an employee morale reason. It may be a personal reason. So that question is more difficult to answer on a global scale. But I would say in order to build a business and to you know have a better success in basically anything you're doing, it would be about constantly challenging yourself and constantly taking things one step at a time, whether it be one piece of your business at a time, and focusing on those pieces and focusing on those challenges to to overcome them or to make them better. And if it's not something you can do on your own, well, finding someone that can, that can help you. I think that's very wise. I think that quite often entrepreneurs think they have to do everything themselves. And that's pretty difficult when you may not necessarily have all the technical skills you need. I know that you had mentioned earlier on in the interview that you built a site yourself, but right. you're no longer doing that. Oh, goodness, no. No, no the you, first did, website, you just said, oh, goodness, no, right. Yeah, yeah, the first website I did build myself um, without any prior knowledge to, uh, you know, in web design whatsoever. The first website was was a little rough, um, but it was, but it worked. And it was probably six, seven months into it that I brought on board a professional designer to help me out on a contract basis and um, prior to actually hiring any employees to build a more presentable website. And now, of course, we have a team in-house that handles all the web design. Um, I approve everything, and I'm, in, um, I'm involved deeply with the uh, user testing and um, the vetting of the new designs as they come out, but I no longer handle that portion of the business. It's not my strongest point. Well, it's good that you recognize that it isn't your, your strongest point. <laughs> Certainly. Going further, your son, Jordan, will be 16 years old tomorrow. Right. Tomorrow's his birthday. Very exciting. How are you grooming him to follow in your footsteps? Well, or are you grooming him? Am I grooming him? I, I, I'm setting the stage for him to be able to follow in my footsteps if he so chooses. Um, I don't want him to follow in my footsteps if it's not something that he finds a passion for. But he does work in our office part-time. Um, he's a professional pearl driller. He can pearl, drill pearls just as well as anyone else in the office. He's got a keen eye for matching. Um, he does a lot of the other tasks around the office, like patch, packaging up pearls, um, you know, the stocking of boxes, et cetera, et cetera. And he's done a lot of travel with me around the world. He's gone with me to China and Japan on pearl buys. And so he really understands the business probably more so than any 16-year-old does in the world. Will he actually take the reins eventually someday? I can always hope. And he talks about it now with excitement. 
but he's only 16 years old. You know, come 17 or come 18 years old, he may fall in love with something else and decide that that's his true passion, that's what he wants to follow, and I will be fine with it. How do you balance your professional and personal life? I know that you work 12 hours a day. When do you sleep? When do you see your family? <laughs> well, I sleep a few hours a night. Um, like I said, I'm still only 35. I don't need a lot of sleep, and the weekends are always great for sleeping in. I do my best to leave the office at home when I go home. Um, that isn't to say I don't work from home. I usually get up around 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning and... I work until the time I need to wake my son up to take him to school. But I'm home every night um, before 7 o'clock, and we have a family dinner every evening at 7 o'clock. And then we spend time together every evening as well, playing ping pong or watching a movie, maybe uh, sitting in the hot tub for a half hour or so. So we, we make it a point to spend family time together every day. And um, we also make it a point um, at least once per year to take a vacation together where there is no work, where it's just either my wife and I or my wife my, uh, and my son and I um, just spending time together and um, all else, worldly worries aside. I can't resist asking, given that you're the ripe old age of 35, whether you plan to retire or perhaps you have in mind that you want to work until you're 100. What do you think, Jeremy? <laughs> I have no plans for retirement at this point. Um, do I want to work till I'm 100? I don't think so. Um, I, I, wanna, would, I yeah. would like to eventually be able to step back a little bit. Um, if my son did take over the company, I would love to be able to step back to more of a part-time position, maybe focus on more of my favorite part of the business, which would either be the marketing side of it or the buying side of it, and just travel and buy. But retirement is not something that's even remotely entered my mind at this point. Okay. Well, I was intrigued on PBS recently. They featured uh, a donut shop called Stan's Donuts. And they've Stan's been Donuts in, here in L.A.? Absolutely. Yeah. In Westwood, right near UCLA. And mm -hmm. uh, you live in L.A., I live in L.A., we both live on the west side of L.A. Right. Uh, what's interesting is that Stan is about to turn 80. And when he was asked how much longer he's planning to work, he says he's planning to continue making donuts until he's 100 years old. Wow. That man has a passion for donuts. <laughs> Absolutely a passion for donuts. Well, you never know. In another 45 years, I may say I want to work another 20 years, too, at this point. <laughs> at this point, I, it's a little too far ahead for me to... Uh, to to plan to ahead, right. <laughs> right. Well, I have to say our conversation today was absolutely delightful, and I hope that you will come back again soon. I would be glad to. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was my pleasure. All right. Please join me again next Wednesday, March 18th, at 5 p.m. Pacific Time. My guests will be independent filmmaker Edward Landler, known for his documentary, I Build the Tower. Leonard Malton of Entertainment Tonight said, A heartfelt and fascinating film a real discovery, 
entertaining and illuminating. Edward Landler, Yale-educated, independent producer, writer, and director, whose feature documentary film on the Watts Tower was showcased at Hollywood's Egyptian Theater, New York City's Modern Museum of Art, and Washington, D.C.'s National Gallery of Art. Passionate about the power of telling stories with pictures, Landler has worked on movies in three continents and was founding member and one-time president of Film Independent, which created the Independent Spirit Awards. To learn more about my Right Fit Method, visit winwithoutcompeting.com and read excerpts from Win, which was nominated for a Business Book Award. To purchase Win, click on the Buy page and select the Right Fit Bookseller for you. Interested in finding out about my coaching services, visit drbarrow.com or winwithoutcompeting.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Please email me at drbarrow at winwithoutcompeting.com or call me directly, 310-441-5305. 310-441-5305. Remember this trigger tip. It's all up to you. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc.